I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode contains graphic descriptions of violence and death. Listener discretion is advised. We have information King has been shot. That's Lorraine. That's a recording of a call going out over the Memphis, Tennessee police radio on the evening of April 4, 1968, moments after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. The subject ran south on Main from 424. He's a young white male, well-dressed. A young white male, well-dressed, ran south from 424 at South Main, 608. The fugitive they're talking about is King's assassin. James Earl Ray, who I hadn't known was also from St. Louis. I came upon the recording when I was searching for any information I could find about a very different St. Louis fugitive, Howard Mechanic, and his 28 years underground. I'd never heard that police tape before, though I remember the day King was shot very well. We were on our way to eat pizza. My father was stopped at a red light when the news came over the radio. I remember him being unsure when light turned green. Should he keep going or turn around and go home? He looked lost in a way I'd never seen before. Anyway, when I heard the recording, I recalled that night and the image of my father being frozen at the wheel. But I didn't think much more about it than that. When you spend 10 years investigating something, you go down all sorts of interesting but irrelevant side roads. This was one of them. Just a curiosity. James Earl Ray, King's assassin, was a fugitive from St. Louis, just like Howard. And that's where the connection ended. Or so I thought. I'm Nina Gildensevi, and this is My Fugitive. I want to tell you a story about a bar. It's called the Grapevine Tavern in South St. Louis. And it opened in January 1968, about the same time that Howard Mechanic and his friends at Wash U were protesting the escalation of the war in Vietnam. The Grapevine Tavern is in the same neighborhood as my dad's house, about a 10-minute drive from the Wash U campus. But the politics inside the Grapevine couldn't have been more different. The bar was an unofficial headquarters for supporters of Alabama Governor George Wallace, the unrepentant racist who was running for president that year. You may have heard Wallace's most famous quote. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. The Grapevine Tavern was a place in a town that had a lot of people that would have been the type of crowd, not all of them, but plenty of them, would have been not only white supremacists, or they would have been hardcore racists, That's Gerald Posner. He's a journalist and the author of 13 books. Case Closed, his investigation into the JFK assassination, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. In 1998, Posner published Killing the Dream, 
James Earl Ray and the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. He spends part of the book describing the grapevine and the politics of its regulars. They would have been people that if you had walked in and grabbed 10 of them and asked them what they thought of Martin Luther King, they would have thought he was a communist or a traitor or worse, that he was a disservice to the country, that he was not loyal. The bar was named after the prison grapevine, the secret networks convicts use to communicate while they're on the inside. And aptly enough, it was the kind of place where local criminals would go to pick up a job. It was owned by John and Carol Ray, James Earl Ray's brother and sister. John and Carol, the whole Ray family, they knew a thing or two about life behind bars. When you look at the Rays, it's a hundred-year history of criminals. The great-great-grandfather hanged as part of the, the plumber gang. His grandfather away for 20 years. His father in and out of prison. His uncle, who really becomes his mentor, James Earl Ray's mentor, goes to jail for throwing acid in his wife's face. James Earl was the eldest of nine children. Five boys, four girls. He was closest to John and Carol and to another brother, Jerry. And the Ray brothers are kids who are so poor at the local school where everybody's poor that James is ridiculed for being the most disgusting and disreputable looking of the entire group. We can't afford the nickel for lunch. So the Rays are outcasts. The only people that are even more social outcasts than them are Blacks. They grew up in the town of Ewing in a part of outstate Missouri known as Little Dixie. Although it wasn't part of the South in the Confederacy, it was right at the borderline and ends up with a lot of what I call Old South racist views. Was James Earl Ray a racist? No question about it. But it's the type of racism that to him was something that he grew up with. So that if you had asked him if he was a racist, as with many racists, he might have said no because he was convinced that those views were right. They were part of his culture and what had been bred into him from the time that he was young. James Earl, John, and Jerry, they would all follow in the family criminal tradition. There are stages in their 20s when all are in prison at different state institutions. Sometimes they overlap, but James trusts them. He knows them. And when they are out of prison, the first person each goes back to is the other. For 10 years, from 1949 to 1959, James Earl commits a whole string of crimes. Although he's kind of a bumbling crook. At the scene of one crime, he loses his shoes and runs away in his stocking feet. After another robbery, he leaves the door of his getaway car open and nearly falls out during the escape. And then, in October of 1959, Ray gets caught robbing a grocery store in St. Louis with a handgun. He's convicted of armed robbery and sentenced to 20 years in the Missouri State Penitentiary. It's a medieval fortress of a prison in Jefferson City. But what does he do the minute he gets caught? He thinks, how do I get out of this prison before my sentence is up? He tries three times to escape, and he fails each time. Years later, in a letter to a reporter who was working on a story about him, Ray wrote, I behaved all right in prison. I did my work, was quiet and clean, and didn't fight or disturb anybody. I didn't even snore or jerk or holler in my sleep. But I was always trying to break out, and that's marked down as bad behavior and adds to your sentence. I had already tried to break out three times and failed. I had just got out of isolation for the last attempt, and the warden had sent me word about what to expect if I was caught trying again. So this time I had to get out. Believe it or not, 
his plan involved yoga, which Ray did regularly in prison, and bread, or more specifically, a bread box, located at the bottom of a truck that came and went from the prison bakery, where Ray had a job. On Saturday, April 22, 1967, John Ray visited James Earl in prison. The next day, James Earl escaped. All that yoga paid off. He contorted himself into the bread box. The guards checked the truck, but they didn't see Ray. He was hidden underneath the stacks of freshly baked bread. And so he gets waved through and onto the other side, and he's off to freedom on what turns out to be a very clever inside move. So this is the guy who sometimes you scratch your head and he looks like the Keystone Cops or the Three Stooges, and other times you say, pretty clever. That's James Earl Ray. Two months after the escape, there's a robbery at the Alton Bank, just outside of St. Louis. Two men get away with $27,000 in small bills. The robbery is never solved. But the shotgun used in the heist is found in the woods, right near where James Earl Ray's mother was buried. A couple of days after the Alton Bank robbery, Ray flees to Canada. When he returns to the U.S., he pays $2,000 in cash for a Mustang convertible. He drives down to Mexico, and then in late 1967, he turns up in L.A. And by the time he comes back to the U.S. and heads out west to Los Angeles, Ray is somebody who's been now to three different countries. He's still a wanted fugitive. And what does he do when he gets to L.A.? Over a period of a few months, he ends up having a nose job. He ends up taking this dance studio class. He ends up getting a license to become a bartender. He's a very hard guy to figure out completely because just at the moment when you think you have Ray figured out, he makes it puzzling, a little confusing, and you realize he remains a bit of an enigma. And then in March of 1968, Ray's life changes course again. He leaves L.A. behind. No more bartending, no more ballroom dancing. You're looking at James Earl Ray, and he's living this life in Los Angeles where he's doing these things that that don't appear to have anything to do directly with assassinating Dr. King. It's not as though he's mapping out everything that Dr. King is doing, but suddenly in late March of 68, just about a week and a half to two weeks before the assassination takes place, he gets in his car and he ends up heading east. Heading east to Atlanta, then Birmingham, then Memphis. More after the break. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Liai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest. 
and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. James Earl Ray starts following King as he travels through the South. The question is why. Why all of a sudden does Ray become fixated on Martin Luther King? We know he's a racist. We know from interviews with fellow inmates that he hated King. But why now? The answer might have something to do with the Grapevine Tavern, his brother and sister's bar back in St. Louis. There was a small-time crook named Russell Byers who had connections at the Grapevine. He was friendly with the bartender and her husband, and they traveled in the same two-bit criminal circles. Years after King's assassination, Byers claimed under oath that two local businessmen offered him $50,000 to kill King. One of the men was a lawyer named John Sutherland. He was an active member of the John Birch Society and an organizer for the George Wallace campaign. The other man was John Kaufman. He owned a seedy motel in nearby Barnhart, Missouri. It was the kind of place where you could pick up a prostitute or get a drug fix. Byers said that he told Sutherland and Kaufman that he wasn't interested in their offer. But $50,000 is a lot of money. Nearly $400,000 today. That's life-changing money. And there's a curious connection between Russell Byers and James Earl Ray. Byers had a brother-in-law who was doing time in the Missouri prison. He was on the same cell block as Ray, six cells apart. And they'd worked together in the prison infirmary and in the bakery in the bakery whose delivery truck James Earl Ray had escaped in. All these connections are circumstantial, of course, but we know that Ray talked about the bounty in prison. A fellow inmate quoted Ray as saying, when I get out, I'm gonna make big money and it's not gonna be robbing banks. He said that a businessman's association had offered $100,000 for killing King and that King was quote, five years past due. There were always offers being made on what might be a bounty to collect if somebody was able to kill King. Now, whether they were real or not, no one knew. Whether the Sutherland bounty would have been paid if somebody had done it and then showed up and said, by the way, I want the money, isn't necessarily clear. But what is clear is that all that had to happen for James Earl Ray to get the little extra motivation to do it was to believe that he or his brothers would be able to collect eventually. In any case, a few days after he leaves L.A., Ray turns up in Atlanta. He has a, a map there. And on that map, on that roadmap, he circled spots in Atlanta that included the Ebenezer Baptist Church that Dr. King had been at, a home that Dr. King had gone to. So he was definitely tracking Dr. King in Atlanta. Even as he's tracking King, though, there's something kind of haphazard about Ray's plans, like all of those botched crimes from his past. For example, Ray buys a rifle in Birmingham, Alabama, under the name Harvey Lohmeyer. Then he comes back the next day and trades it in for a bigger gun. So you think about an assassination, you think it's really well planned. It's a professional assassination. They're going to take their time and really know everything. Ray bought the rifle 
for this assassination only five, six days before the actual event. On March 29th, he walks into a gun store in Alabama and he buys a 243 caliber rifle and says he's going to go game hunting. And then he actually comes back the next day and says, by the way, um, I uh, talked to uh, my, my brother and I need a, a, a bigger gun. That one isn't big enough for the game we're hunting, Ray says. Less than a week later, he's in Memphis. Black sanitation workers had been striking in the city for weeks, and Dr. King had been there twice already to lend his support. Tension in the city was mounting, and there was a heated debate inside the King camp. Should he go back for one more protest? There was a march scheduled for Friday, April 5th. King arrived on Wednesday the 3rd. He was exhausted, he had a sore throat, and he was running a slight fever. But he was persuaded to speak at the Bishop Charles Mason Temple that night. Outside, a torrential storm had rolled in. It was a powerful night. You could hear the thunder in the, in the background. You could hear the lightning crashing. And you could hear the rain coming down. Clara Jean Esther was in the temple that night. She was 19 years old at the time and active in the civil rights movement. He starts off talking about his flight to Memphis and how they had guarded the airplane in Atlanta the night before and that they were just making sure everything was fine on that plane before they took off. And the the pilot says to the passengers, excuse the delay, but we have Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on board and we just want to make certain everything is fine before we take off. When he got off the plane in Memphis, uh, he was confronted by several staff and, and leaders in the city about the threats that had come in on his life. And so all of that was on his heart as he went to the microphone. And he talked about, I heard about the threats, but none of that matters anymore because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to... And he said, I've seen the promised land. And I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. James Earl Ray arrived in Memphis that night, too. On the evening news, on the local Memphis news, they showed Dr. King that night. They showed him at the hotel he was staying at, the Lorraine Motel. Dr. King favored the Lorraine, a Black-owned motel. It's a low-slung building downtown, two stories with mint green doors, and a walkway running all along the second floor. Across the alley from the Lorraine was a flop house. Bessie Brewer's rooming house. James Earl Ray checks in there under the name of John Willard. He gets a room where he can look out with a pair of binoculars and see the balcony outside of Dr. King's room. And he then sets up a little perch from where he's able with the binoculars to watch the balcony at the back of the Lorraine Motel. He also goes a number of times to the one bathroom that is shared by all of the rooms inside that flop house. Some of the other men said, we try to go to the bathroom around 4 o'clock, 4.15, 4.30, and somebody was always in there. 
it's really setting up for what eventually will be the assassin's perch because the bathtub in that bathroom is underneath a window. When that window is open, it has a clear unobstructed view to the back of the Lorraine Motel. So Ray, sitting inside his room, waits for Dr. King to come onto the balcony. Clara Jean Esther was waiting too. She and some friends had come to the Lorraine. They had plans to eat catfish in the motel restaurant. If they were lucky, catch a glimpse of Dr. King. I parked my car by the stairwell and all of a sudden Dr. King comes out his room. And his room was right above for where we're walking and I freeze. And he starts talking to people down below. And um, Ben Branch is there, musician, and he says to him, play my favorite song. Dr. King and his entourage were getting ready for dinner. And so somebody says to him, uh, Doc, you might want to get a jacket because it may be a little chilly before we get back tonight. And so he turns to go back into his room and Raph Abernath is standing there with him and Raph says, Doc, I'll get it. So he goes back in the room to get the jacket. Dr. King continues to say stuff to folks down below. I'm still looking at him. And about that time, what sounded like a truck backfiring. 6.01 p.m., a shot. One deadly shot hits Dr. King in the lower part of the jaw and is about as uh, deadly as a single bullet can be. And he is lifted up and thrown back. I could hear people say, get down, get down. I could even see people waving their arm for folks to get down. But all I remember is seeing him fall in a way that he wasn't just getting down. He had been knocked down. And I took off and went up the stairwell. I stepped over his body. Uh, I could see the blood was coming from his right side, like I'm thinking his face, his neck in that area, but it's a pool of blood. Uh, I I kneel down and I try to read his pulse Um, and, and it's not working. Nothing seems to be working. I see his chest is moving, but it's very slow. And the only thing I could think of was help him breathe by unbuckling his belt and unbuttoning his pants to where it's not tight if it's tight on him. His eyes are open. He has the most pleasant expression on his face because he was in a very happy conversation with people. Um, And then I step out the way And at some point, I guess people are coming out of the rooms or whatever and asking what happened. We start pointing across the street. There's an iconic photograph of this moment. A group of people on the balcony over King's body, pointing across the street from where the shot had come. We have information that King has been shot at the Lorraine. Okay, Zach, can you on the call? Back nine, back eight. Back in, we have information that the shot came from a brick building directly 
east across a uh, correction west from the low range. Ray is running down the stairs out of Bessie Brewer's rooming house and turns the corner down the sidewalk. Hampton Sides is the author of Hellhound on His Trail, about the FBI's pursuit of James Earl Ray, which at the time was said to be the largest manhunt in history. And then suddenly he does this seemingly stupid thing. He ditches all his belongings, this whole bundle of all of his toiletries, his gun his various personal belongings. He just drops it there on the sidewalk in this vestibule. It's actually a jukebox business that's just just next door to Bessie Brewer's rooming house. It was kind of classic James Earl Ray. He had pulled this crime off he was about to get away from the scene of the crime, but he left his rifle there. And a rifle with fingerprints on it, um, a scope with fingerprints on it. The subject ran south on Main from 424. Any physical description on the subject? A description of the suspect goes out almost immediately. Mild-mannered-looking guy, kind of average-looking white guy in a suit, well-dressed in a white Mustang. And that was the very first description that we had that went out over uh, the police dispatchers in Memphis. The Memphis police form a perimeter around the Lorraine Motel. But the state police don't act as fast at the state line, less than 15 miles away. Ray drives his Mustang into Mississippi, and for the next 11 hours, he stays on small back roads, slowly making his way back to Atlanta. He drove all night, and arrived in Atlanta early in the morning and realized, though, by that point, descriptions had gone out everywhere nationally that they were looking for a white Mustang. And so he parked his car in a nondescript location, a public housing project, and left it there because he knew that that was the very first way he was going to get caught. This was his loyal companion for many months, his beloved Mustang, but he had to get rid of it. He knew it, and he did. Ray stops to pick up his laundry, and then he heads to the bus station. He gets on a bus to Detroit, where he easily crosses over the border into Canada. He doesn't really know for sure what he's going to do next. He's waiting to see what comes out of the news, because at this point, the FBI was not looking for James Earl Ray. The day after the assassination, Attorney General Ramsey Clark arrives in Memphis and gives a televised press conference. Can you tell us how far your investigation is spreading? How far away from Tennessee? It will spread as far as the evidence takes us, and it has spread um, some several hundred miles from the borders of Tennessee at this time. The hunt for James Earl Ray would eventually cost over $2 million and involve more than 3,500 agents. They didn't know who they were looking for. Could be a guy named John Willard. That was who checked into the rooming house on South Main could be a guy named Harvey Lohmeyer. That was the alias of the person who had bought the rifle in Birmingham. They were initially thinking it was a conspiracy of maybe both of these guys, Harvey Lohmeyer and John Willard. They weren't looking for James Earl Ray, and it took a good number of weeks before the FBI finally figured out that it was James Earl Ray. They managed to do it through the most boring investigative work you can possibly imagine. This was long before 
the age of computers when they can instantly match fingerprints. So they took the fingerprints that had been found on some of the objects that Ray had left, and they got teams of people in Washington to compare those fingerprints with the fingerprints of every known fugitive in the United States. And this was by hand and by eyeball. They had 53,000 fingerprints to go through. Just 700 sets in, two weeks after the assassination, they catch a break. They finally realized that these fingerprints were the fingerprints of an escaped fugitive from Jeff City Prison named James Earl Ray. While the FBI was working to identify the shooter, Ray was in Toronto planning where to go next. He was interested in Rhodesia. Rhodesia was essentially a white supremacist state run, uh, you know, kind of a rogue state that had no extradition treaty with the United States. He figured if he could get there, he'd be beyond the reach of the law. The problem is he doesn't have enough money to get there. So he changes plans. He flew to London and hung out there for a while. And all this time, he's constantly reading the news realizing bit by bit by bit, okay, oh, they figured out that it's James Earl Ray. Now they're looking for me. They're closing in on him. And he realizes that it's it's way beyond just the FBI now. It's the Canadian Royal Police, Interpol, Scotland Yard. So he's getting frantic and he's trying to figure out how to get to Southern Africa. He takes a cheap flight to Lisbon, Portugal, and hunts around for anyone who will take him to Southern Africa or to Angola by ship. And he just strikes out. He doesn't get anywhere. So he flies back to London. On June 8th, 1968, two months after King's assassination, Ray goes back to Heathrow Airport, looking to return to Lisbon. His documents have the name Ramon George Sneed on them, another of his aliases. He hands his passport to the customs officer, who sees a second passport sticking out of his bag with a different middle name on it. And so so the customs official is curious about what what is this other passport that has a slightly different spelling? And he begins to, you know, talk to Ray and try to understand what's going on. And, And then he looks at this list of names that had been given to him by Scotland Yard and ultimately coming from the FBI bunch of names of people who are supposed to be detained if they pass through customs. Ray tells the British officials, look, there's some kind of mistake. You've got the wrong guy. The United States officials say that your name is Jimmy Ray or James Earl Ray. And he said, absolutely not. That's not true. And then they ask him, well, would you like to make contact with anyone back in the United States? And he said, yes, if you could put in a phone call to my brother. And they said, well, what's your brother's name? And he says, Jerry Ray. The equivalent of falling out of your getaway car. The next day, James Earl's other brother, John, owner of the Grapevine Tavern, gives an interview to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He says, if my brother did kill King, he did it for a lot of money. He never did anything if it wasn't for money. James Earl is extradited to the U.S. And on March 10th, 1969, his 41st birthday, Ray pleads guilty to the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Three days later, he recants that plea, saying his own attorney had railroaded him into a confession. 
For the rest of his life, Ray insisted that he didn't pull the trigger. That instead, he was working with a mysterious figure named Raoul. And all he did was wait at a gas station as Raoul or someone else did the shooting. And you were going back to uh, to pick up this man that you say is Raoul? Is no, I just waiting the car back. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, the way I've recollected, uh, I've seen some police cars and people down there, and I turned off the other way. Now, there is policemen. In the handful of interviews Ray gave from prison, like this one from 1977, he meandered and mumbled and talked in circles. It was hard to even figure out what he was saying. There's one policeman down there, he says he's seen me and told me to get my so-and-so out of the area. An officer told him to get moving, he says. And then he contradicts that story in the very next breath. I don't have no recollection of that, but uh, that could have been so bad. I don't remember anything like that. There have been at least five official investigations into who killed King. All of them have identified Ray as the shooter. There's been no evidence that Raoul ever existed. And yet conspiracy theories have bloomed over the last 50 years. Even the King family has said they don't believe that James Earl Ray was the assassin. These theories have flourished for two main reasons. One is that many in the civil rights movement have good reason to mistrust the FBI to question their motives and their word. The other is because there was never a trial. Ray took that plea. And even though he recanted three days later, the facts of what happened were never aired in a court of law. And Ray himself did plenty to muddy the waters. People who had conversations with Ray always commented on how unsatisfying it was. You couldn't figure out what he was really saying or where he was coming from. I describe his identity as something like that of a squid in the sense that his defense mechanism was to throw up confusing statements, say confusing weird things, almost like a cloud of ink, and you'd poke poke around in that cloud, you know, trying to figure out what he say, what do he mean, what, what what is that? But you said this other thing, what? And by the time you've kind of figured out uh, what he was trying to say, you know, he's gone. The squid is gone. Raoul may have been an ink cloud, but there were growing doubts about whether James Earl Ray acted alone. We're left with this guy, James Earl Ray, this kind of nobody who pulled off this crime. It's a crime that offends our sense of scale and proportionality. How could such a dirtbag of, of a human being take down this great leader, this great charismatic prophet. For Gerald Posner, the question he's left with is not about Ray. It's about the FBI. Why didn't they look into the Grapevine Tavern and questions of a bounty being offered to kill King? There was a pile of evidence that pointed to a possible conspiracy. And the FBI just ignored it. So if I look at just what I call the manhunt, the hunt for the perpetrator, the hunt for the person pulling the trigger, as I believe Ray was the person pulling the trigger, that part was competent. But they didn't do a good job, was looking for a wider conspiracy. They were looking and focused on one person. They could find the shooter. They were convinced they had solved the case. And and that is an assumption that I think is a jump far too big. As a matter of fact, It almost seems to me that you need to have an investigation from the very beginning 
that assumes that when you find the shooter, that's only the beginning of your investigation. You found the person that pulled the trigger. Now the question is why? Next time on My Fugitive. The communists and their followers uh, who are dedicated to red fascism continue to live the big lie. Their goal has always been and always will continue to be the overthrow of the government of the United States by force and violence. Hoover goes to Bobby Kennedy in 1962 and says, Martin Luther King is a communist. One of the most notorious and really worst things that the FBI did during the 1960s was its campaign to discredit Martin Luther King. This is not intelligence. This is political warfare. It was a nightmare. My Fugitive is an original production of Pineapple Street Studios and Odyssey. You can binge all episodes from this series exclusively on the new Odyssey app. Odyssey has all the podcasts you crave, plus the music, news, and sports that matter to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. Download it for free today from the App Store or Google Play. This show is hosted by me, Nina gildan our producers are Kat Aaron, Agarenish Ashagre, Justine Daum, Janelle Anderson, and Maria Robbins Somerville, with additional production support from Sandra Ellen. The show is edited by Joel Lovell, with support from Maddie Sprung Kaiser. Research and fact checking by Charles Richter and Ben Phelan. Our engineers are Noriko Okabe, Hannes Brown, and Will Bigwood. This episode features original composition by Dawood Anthony, original music by David Einmo, and music from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to our executive producers, Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. And thank you to each of our guests for joining us to help tell this story. To see photos, FBI documents, and more, follow us on Instagram at MyFugitivePodcast and visit our website at MyFugitivePodcast.com.